It is my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Professor Emily Tardivelle, uh, who will be addressing us tonight on the theme of Christ, uh, Christian citizenship. Uh, this topic, I think, is a perennial one in Christian thought, uh, prone especially to emerging at times of wealth crisis. Um, I think here we can think of figures as diverse as Augustine, uh, Luther, Maritain, Niebuhr, uh, for all of whom the relationship between the gospel, the Christian community, and the broader polity becomes a crucial question or even a problem. Uh, but today, I think we'll be focusing on the Church Fathers, so we'll begin at the beginnings. So Professor Tardivelle is Professor of Philosophy and Scientific Director of the Chair of the Common Good at the uh, Institut Catholique in Paris. She is a member of the French redaction of the International Catholic Review, Communio, and is the author of several books, uh, La Liberté au Principe, on Czech philosopher and phenomenologist Jan Patochka, a favorite of mine, actually, I love Patochka. Uh, which received the uh, Prix La Bruyère of the Académie Française, um, Tout Pouvoir Vient de Dieu, which deals with uh, the issues that we're going to discuss today, uh, political theology in the patristic age, and a collection of texts with Jean-Luc Marion, uh, Phenomenologia del Dono. Uh, currently, her research focuses on the conceptual history of the common good and the theme of political theology. So, welcome, Professor Tardivelle. Thank you, Christophe, for your very kind presentation. Uh, first of all, uh, I'd like to thank Thomas Levergun and the Lumen Christi Institute for this uh, invitation. That's a great pleasure and a great honor uh, to be here at the University of Chicago and to have the chance to expose one of the major claims of my present research. Oh, Christian citizenship, a paradox. Some introductory remarks. At the beginning of 2015, the French Catholic Press at Solem published my essay on political philosophy entitled Tout pouvoir vient de Dieu. There is no power but of God. This essay set out a much more expansive program of research on the relationship between theology and politics that I am working on at present. In general terms, this essay was framed as a reflection upon the formulation of St. Paul in the Epistle to the Romans, 13.1. It put the common political interpretation of this passage to the test of a historical, philosophical, and theological reception whose most prominent landmarks are to be found in the Fathers of the Church, especially in St. Justin, Tertullian, and St. Augustine. The major stake of this essay consisted in demonstrating that this formulation does not cover a Christian political doctrine, but rather a way of conceiving Christian citizenship in light of the requirements of the universal common good. Beyond the historical insight of this essay, its readers are sure to grasp its contemporary relevance at a time when much violence is seeking religious justification. However, at the same time, as Pope Benedict XVI has said, and as Pope Francis has reiterated in his discourse to the European Parliament in 2014, I quote, it is the forgetting of God and not his glorification that engenders violence, end of quote. Following the example of Saint Justin, 
The Christian martyrs of the first centuries testified to this glorification of God as rooted in the passions of love and not in the violence of arms. One also observes that in Europe, as well as in America, many episodes, episodes of violence which occurs seek any religious justification, yet they nevertheless have their own monstrous idol, the Moloch, who demands a daily and increasing human tribute. Thus, the idea that there is no power but of God also signifies that the power does not come from money or that it should not belong to it, for you cannot serve God and Maimon, says the Gospel of Luke 16.13. In the face of such a dual idolatrous impasse, whose positions are established on opposing fronts, Christians have to defend a specific way of living in the city. In, it is indeed this notion of Christian citizenship, rather than yet another political doctrine, is a great cemetery of political doctrine which history constitutes not already full, that this very ideal notion of Christian citizenships, citizenship, which seems to me necessary to promote today. However, in order to do so, Christians must have access to an authentic interpretation of themselves. As a result, any apology ad extra is inalienable from an apology ad intra, as attested by the patristic text, which serve as guides in this essay. Acknowledging that this reflection, which is primarily but not exclusively addressed to Christians, owes a great deal to the seminar which Jean-Luc Marion has held on the fathers of the church between 2011 and 2016 at the Institut Catholique de Paris, my hope is that it will enable others to discover what Hugo Rahner had called the immortal example of the Christian church of the early days. So now my, um, the presentation of my claim, argument. We often wonder whether the Christian faith entails a political doctrine as it does a social one. This question is not relevant. For if Christians necessarily practice their citizenship, if there is such a thing as Christian citizenship, it does not designate a political regime which might be specifically Christian in virtue of the following principle. I quote the Gospel of John, my kingdom does not belong to this world, says Christ, in the Gospel of John 18.36. In belonging to Christ, Christians belong to a kingdom which does not belong to this world, but rather to God, a kingdom which has no necessary or even privileged political expression. Christianity does not entail any particular political doctrine, whether it be established or competing with it and thus always of the same nature as itself. Christians live in the city without belonging to it and without supporting any competing political doctrine. The question of Christian citizenship is not one of which political doctrine might be derived from Christianity, but rather one of its very absence. Christianity does not consist of promoting or practicing a political doctrine in any way. It is essentially a way of living in the city. 
This claim might appear surprising, especially if one recalls the famous Pauline formulation, which forcefully affirms that there is no power but of God. Political thought has not failed to see this statement as the scriptural foundation of a Christian political model, and more specifically, of a Christian theocratic doctrine, insofar as this formulation might serve to justify the temporal power of the ministers of the will of God. As if the will of God could not be reconciled with the will of the people without conceiving of God as the God of a particular people. In this case, it would be possible to assert, as Jefferson had done for American democracy, vox populi, vox dei. In this way, the reference to the will of God would only lose its status of an anti-democratic transcendence for the sake of signifying the free will of the people, its right to self-determination, a right which might be opposed to that of all other people. Yet, the God of the Christians is not a God of a particular people, or at least no longer, as he had previously been the God Israel alone. He is the God of a humanity fully reconciled in Christ, as Paul emphasizes in the epistle to the Romans 10:12. I quote, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and reaching all who call upon him. In this way, the universality of Pauline reference to the will of God would ratify its anti-democratic character, since it would be opposable to the free will of a particular people. In this case, one could make an objection to the initial claim and assert that Christianity entails a specific political doctrine whose character would be eminently theocratic. From the time of the apostles up to the present day, history does indeed testify to this theocratic temptation of Christianity, operative in the following ways. At the end of antiquity, in the form of Caesaropapism, the Caesar of the church by the state, beginning with the Emperor Constantine, what called himself the Bishop of External Affairs, all the way to Justinian, the Emperor Priest, and the despots who had succeeded him. In the Middle Ages, this time in the form of papal pontifical theocracy, the Caesar of the state by the church, when the church, finally victorious over imperial despotism, had forged itself a double-edged sword. In the modern period, with the renewal of Caesaropapism, when the state, from absolute monarchies to the great Western Revolution, had accomplished its democratic molting without abandoning the reference to the will of God in assuring its legitimacy, just as the notion of civil religion would attest. However, does the political history of Christianity exhaust its theological significance? To what degree is it legitimate to view Christian theology through an exclusively political lens to the point of always recognizing within it an instrument of the absolutization of powers that are human all to human, whether it be a matter of the power of the church or the power of the state? In face of contemporary theocratic temptations, which no longer have anything in common with Christianity or even claim themselves to be anti-Christian, it is necessary to once again take up the thought of the early Christians, what had the wisdom to view political thought 
through an essentially theological lens. For this theological lens did not consist in developing a Christian theocratic doctrine, but rather in promoting and practicing within the Roman Empire an alternative way of living in the city, an alternative kind of citizenship. A semantic shift accounts for this change in perspective. While the Greek politeia signified both the political constitution of a city in general and the best possible version, version of such a constitution, in fact, the De Republica of Cicero is the Roman counterpart to the Peripoliteias of Plato, but in the thought of the early Christians, it emerges as a reference to a way of living in the city. We note this change in particular in the epistle to Diognetus during the second century. I quote the epistle to Diognetus, but while they, the Christians, dwell in both Greek and barbarian cities, each as his lot was cast and follow the customs of the land in dress and food and other matters of living, they show forth their remarkable and admittedly paradoxical politeia, way of living. While there may be such a thing as a Christian politeia, a specifically Christian way of living in the city, there is no such a thing as a Christian respublica, that is, a specifically Christian political constitution which, with its own particular mode of government, be it monarchical, aristocratic, or democratic. A theological perspective on political thought does not oppose the will of God to the will of the people anymore than necessarily uniting them. Its objective is neither to elaborate a treatise on the best form of government, nor to develop a general theory of the state, but rather to discern the best way of living in the city. This optimal way of living in the city is expressed in the form of a paradox, which runs through all the apologetic literature of the first centuries of Christianity, beginning with the Apology of Justin and the Epistle to Dionetus, all the way to Augustine's City of God, which might be considered as the last great apology of this period. This paradox may be summed up as follows. The best way of living in the city consists in living there as a foreigner, for such civil distance allows a preservation of the city from its idolatrous tendencies. Here, we might once again cite the epistle to Diognetus, which expresses this Christian requirement of a responsible distance in a very effective way. I quote the epistle to Diognetus. The Christian live in fatherlands of their own, but as aliens. They share all things as citizens and bear all things as strangers. Every foreign land is their fatherland and every fatherland a foreign land." End of quote. In the apology of Justin, even more than in the epistle to Diognetus, such responsible distance is clarified in terms of its principle. Christians promote and practice a responsible distance in relation to the city because they try hard 
I quote, to live according to reason and to flee from evil. This formulation of Justin, to live according to reason and to flee from evil. In this formulation, one recognizes the principle to which the Latin father would grant the status of the first precept of natural law, do good, avoid evil. You will find this um, formulation in Ambrose of Milan, uh, in Thomas Aquinas, and even earlier, it is necessary to refer to the epistle to the Romans 12.9. Let love be sincere, hate what is evil, all done to what is good. Without explicitly relating it to this principle, Justin takes recourse to the notion of the law of nature, fuseos nomos. In fact, in his first, he is, pardon, Justin is the first of the fathers who had clearly shown the value of the notion of natural law. Thus, Christian citizenship is characterized by a double obedience to the laws of the city and to the law of nature, whose hierarchy of perfection had already been observed in the epistle to Jognetus. I quote, the Christian obey the appointed laws, yet in their own life, they excel the laws. Natural law is not a law that contradicts civil law, but rather a law that imposes a way of living which fulfills it. <laughs> a law which imposes loving, to be precise, for one who loves the other has fulfilled the law, as Paul affirms in the Epistle to the Romans, 13.8. Thus, Christian citizenship entails the understanding that the event whose witnesses Christians are urges them to conceive of their relation to the law and to the state in a different way not on the basis of an empty formula, of a formal principle, just as the Australian positivist jurist Hans Kelsen had criticized the first precept of the Christian natural law, but on the basis of an absolute imperative which is rooted in the very passion of Christ. This absolute imperative is none other than that of love, understood in the sense of an unusual passions, upomene xene, to which Justin refers in connection with Christians facing martyrdom. This definition perfectly reiterates that of the first epistle to the Corinthians 13.7, love, agape, bears all things, panta, upomenei, just as it coincides with the definition of Christian citizenship in the epistle to Jonatus. Christians bear all things as stranger, pant upomenosin os xenoi. So you have the, the same definition of love and of Christian citizenship, uh, to bear all things. This definition of the Christian politeia in terms of the passions of love can be found all the way up to the city of God, in which Augustine exhorts Christians to endure, tolerare, even the worst government, and by such endurance, tolerantia, to win for themselves a place of the highest eminence in the most holy and august court of angels, in that heavenly republic whose law is the will 
of God, end of quote. This definition of Christian citizenship allows one to see the Pauline formulation in the epistle to the Romans 13.1, there is no power but of God, through an essentially theological lens. Although contemporary exegesis remains divided with regard to its interpretation, Father Jean-Noël Aletti, a French Jesuit, explained that the formulation of Paul cannot be understood apart from the literary units to which it belongs, from the epistle to the Romans, 12.9, let your love, agape, be sincere, hate what is evil, all done to what is good, to the epistle to the Romans, 13.10, love, agape, does not evil to the neighbor, hence love is a fulfillment of the law. Thus, the epistle to the Romans, 13.1, which explains that there is no power but of God, has no other starting and ending point than love, which must, must inform all Christian behavior, including its relationship to the law and to the state. This is why it is possible to say that the aim of the passage is neither to elaborate a political doctrine, nor to establish the legitimacy of political power. However, it is necessary to point out that for all that, the epistle to the Romans, 13.1, nevertheless theorizes the relationship of Christians to the law and to the state, that is, the specifically Christian way of living in the city. This claim, which allows one to see the epistle to the Romans 13.1 through an essentially theological lens, without rejecting its properly political implications, may be confirmed by a reconstitutionalization of the Pauline formula and of its reception by the fathers of the church. Here, I would restrict my corpus to previously cited text while adding the apology of Tertullian. In view of the general context, it is necessary to emphasize that the strictly juridical political objective of these texts consists in clearing Christian's name of the crimes of which it has been accused. As far as public crimes are concerned, the only ones in which I am interested here are, at least in the text of the second century, those of lege majesty, treason, and less religion, apostasy. In the context of the Roman Empire, as established by Augustus in 27, these two crimes would have been considered as one. For the emperor was not only a holder of power, potestas, but also an agent of authority, auctoritas, of the power of suggestion and ratification of all public acts, including, of, uh, including that of inclu inducting a god into a pantheon, an act which had until then been reserved primarily to the Senate. Insofar as Christians refused to sacrifice to the gods of the city, less religion, they trespassed again the autoritas of the emperor, less majesty. Indeed, as the French historian Hervé Houdard points out, relying upon the work of André Magdala, autoritas principis, such recognition by the Senate of the autoritas of Octavian, qualified as Augustus, 
expressed a general principle of veneration and stemmed from the religious sphere. It suggested the closeness of Octavian with the gods of the city. In the context of the Roman Empire, asserting that there is no power potestas but of God, and that that God is the autoritas which confirms and amplifies power in its application, was tantamount to divesting the emperor of his autoritas, and not in order to render it to the Senate, but rather in order to render it to God. In this way, the epistle to the Romans, 13.1, could not be understood apart from its relation to the epistle to the Romans, 13.7, where Paul, referring in particular to the Gospel of Matthew, 22.21, claims, render to all their dues. A statement which can then be interpreted in the following way, render the potestas to Caesar and the octoritas to God. Admittedly, Paul is making use of a legal principle, which is to be found later on in the formulation of Ulpian, reiterated by the Codex Juris, Jus sum quique tribuere. However, its purpose is certainly not that of a theological justification of the legitimacy of Roman power, and thus not of its absolutization. On the contrary, the formulation, there is no power, no power but of God, aims at limiting the legitimacy of Roman power by inoculating it against its idolatrous tendency towards self-absolutization, which is manifest in its identification of potestas with autoritas. The idea that there is no potestas but of God signifies that Caesar cannot appropriate to himself the octoritas that belongs to none other than God. However, is it therefore, however, is it therefore necessary to invert this claim and to conclude, and conclude from its revolutionary character of the epistle to the Romans 13.1? Admittedly, Christians are liable to be accused of less religion and less majesty in the context of the Roman Empire. And yet does this mean that they adhere to a competing political doctrine, the goal of which might be the establishment of a Christian state? One of the arguments most strongly opposed to this interpretation of the Epistle to the Romans 13.1 is found in the Epistle to the Romans 13.5, in which Paul not only does not exhort Christians to rebel, to rebel but rather, on the contrary, to submit themselves to political power, whether it be Christian or not. Therefore, it is necessary to be subject, not only because of the wrath, but also because of conscience, says Paul. Far from promoting a kind of theology of revolution, the epistle to the Romans 13.1 aims at limiting the legitimacy of all power, whether it be Christian or not. In the context of the persecutions of the second century, the repetition of this exhortation to submission to the point of martyrdom is illustrated as much by the apology as by the death of Justin. It is also evident in the apology of Tertullian, even though the latter did not end up being a martyr. Admittedly, Christians did not sacrifice to the gods of the city, but the 
they did not shy away from condemnation, following the example of Christ and even of Socrates before him. And we, we see that uh, Socrates is frequently referred to in uh, apologetic literature, in particular in the works of Justin, who mentions him on several uh, occasions. And uh, accused, you know, of not acknowledging the gods of, that the city acknowledges, but other newfangled divinities, Socrates had refused to shy away from his condemnation, all the while rejecting its injustice and turning it on his accusers. And Justin takes up the same claim in his apology. Such martyr-like and not revolutionary behavior rooted in the passions of love confirms the statements of the epistle to Diognetus on the eminently civic attitude of the Christians. It, it is also this very idea that is found, contrary to all political Augustinianism, in Book Two of the City of God, in which Augustine, as has already been said, calls Christians to endurance, even towards the most corrupt of powers, and not for an absorption of the temporal by the spiritual. Thus, the formulation, there is no power but of God, not only criticizes the idolatrous tendencies of Roman power, that is, the theocratic temptations of a pagan power, but also rejects all future theocratic temptations of any Christian power, whether these temptations take the form of Caesaropapism or of papal theocracy. This claim can also be expressed positively. If Christians criticize the idolatry of temporal power, that is, its self-establishment by the identification of potestas with autoritas, they do not, for all that, reject its autonomy. The, specific, the specifically Christian way of living in the city thus entails a political position proper to the Christians. Yet, this position should not be confused with a specific political doctrine because it consists neither in competing with an established power, nor in justifying its nature or its kind of political regime or its laws. This position proper to the Christians, which might be characterized in reference to the epistle to Diognetus as paradoxical, is expressed in the requirement of an autonomous, yet non-foundational temporal power. The epistle to the Romans, 13.1 expresses this double requirement of autonomy and openness to an absolute transcendence, which prohibits holders of power from appropriating its foundation. In this way, the formulation, there is no power but of God, aims at rendering power fundamentally inappropriable because it is founded upon an authority which transcends it absolutely and subordinates it to its proper end, the common good as the good of all. Far from entailing a theocratic doctrine which would confer temporal power upon the ministers of the will of God, the epistle to the Romans 13.1 theorizes 
beyond the relationship of the Christian to the law and the state, the main conditions of the common good as the universal good. These conditions, which I analyze in detail in my essay, are threefold. The non-idolatry of power, the search for peace, and the respect for freedom, first and foremost, religious freedom. However, they may also be summarized in a single condition, the passions of love. By the end of this work essay, the Pauline reference to the will of God completely lose, loses its status of an anti-democratic transcendence. On the contrary, and paradoxically, it becomes clear that it theorizes the conditions of a true democracy. If one thinks, following Claude Lefort, that a true democracy is not first and foremost a political regime, and that the impossibility of appropriating power to oneself is its fundamental condition. I refer here to uh, Claude Lefort, and uh, I, uh, I quote uh, democracy and political theory. This model reveals the revolutionary and unprecedented feature of democracy. The locus of power becomes an empty place. There is no need to dwell on the details of the institutional apparatus. The important point is that this apparatus prevents governments from appropriating power for their own ends, from incorporating it into themselves. So we could have uh, a kind of Christian interpretation of this uh, statement of uh, Claude Lefort, which is not uh, Christian. And here, uh, when I say the true democracy, uh, in fact, that's a true policy, uh, a true politeia, at the condition of uh, all um, uh, political regime, which is uh, aimed uh, to uh, the universal common good. Only then might one consider that Christian citizenship, which has no necessary or even privileged political expression, nevertheless favors the establishment and preservation of a form of government and society which, which can be conceived of today as the best guarantee of the universal common good. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>